All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. And welcome back to part two with Mark Stavish. And let's just get right into this very engaging and very abstract, I grant you that, this discussion today on egregores. So if people, not everyone is following, you're forgiven because this is a very abstract matters. But if you're going to free yourself from the influence of an egregore, do you have to be a magician? Do you have to understand the laws of manipulating energy and, mm-hmm. you know, how stuff works? Or is it possible? Because if you can create an egregore without being a magician, which you can, because most people contribute to it automatically, couldn't you also reverse it that way without having to, you know, be a Mark Stavish? <laughs> <laughs> you see what I mean? Well, that's that's the point is that, you know, the, the whole idea, what we see is people over-identifying with, with magician or this or that is, isn't in itself a problem. We're we have to understand what is the purpose of our path. Our path is awakening. And that uh, that awakening is the magical path is a path. It's a tool. It's not an identity. Mm. You mentioned earlier that it's not possible for like an entire culture to be involved in the path. And the one of the few exceptions to that, both for good and not so good, was Tibet. Tibet was more or less established as a magical empire like egypt right and so we have a few examples of that but here you know vajrayana on different levels was practiced or enforced whatever you want to think of it as across the culture and you see a different aspect of that a different expression in egypt so we see some examples of that but they're rare Mm. and they have both strengths and weaknesses and um, so we have to look at everyone having their own path and their own mechanism. But how do we find that in a way that allows for what we might consider, I don't like to use this term, uh, adaptation is the word, I don't like evolution, but, but greater harmony, if that's possible. Um, we're at a time in the world where we have a tremendous amount of technology, tremendous amount of capacity, and these different egregores, you know, seek to access that as well. Mm. So we have to constantly bring ourselves back as, as individuals to finding our, our purpose, our identity, and then finding that, that knowledge and conversation with your holy guardian angel, if you will, that, that state of inner awareness, even if it's not there all the time, at least to have it, and then how do we bring that forth into our life and then bring that forth into the world to some degree? You know, I don't believe that we're going to have a great awakening. Are you collectively? Right. And even if we do, and I've written about the problems of that, even if we did have heaven on earth, mm-hmm. it would only last for so long yeah, yeah. because the nature of cycles is such. Yeah, yeah. And any utopian dream is going to be a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Revolution eating its children. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to find a way to recognize 
that there is a certain balance in creation or duality, I should say, in duality. And you're never going to have everyone being happy all the time because you can't. Mm. There will always be suffering because that is a perception and a perspective. Are you, are you now limited to earth or are you saying an entire universe? I'm just focusing on our, our day-to-day human experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm just focusing on that. Mm-hmm. Because that's where we're at and, and where the people listening are mostly. We're focused on the human condition. Yeah. Whether we want to admit to that or not. The human earthly condition, because that's, right. because that's a karma in itself. Right. Right. So we, we look at this and we have to recognize that we will do our best with the time we have and the energy and resources we have to leave the world a little better, a little happier, a little more beautiful, mm-hmm. but also recognize that this is cyclic yeah. and that we can't create heaven on earth without first creating it in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And even that means it will only last on earth as long as we do. Yeah, yeah, the Theosophists have a useful metaphor here. They say that, you know, the, the, the pupils move on in the system. So you begin as a, uh, in the kinder school and then you uh, eventually get to the university level. So mm-hmm. the pupils are moving on. That's the souls going through the bodies, but that the school is standing still. In other words, you'll never have a situation with the entire school, everybody's professors at the same time. That's akin to thinking that everybody on earth is enlightened at the same time, and now we have paradise. No, the the earth is what it is. It gives us the lessons we have, but then we can. And I believe that's also the story of Enoch, who is related to Egregore. Mm -hmm. Enoch becoming Metatron, showing the way for the entire humanity that, look, you can raise yourself out of this hellhole. (laughs) You can enter a higher uh, level of existence when you have reached that level by uh, embracing your development, but expecting that the physical world and the, its structures, all the new souls coming in all the time, all the new children coming in all the time, yes. it's going to keep us behind. It's going to drag us down collectively. It's going to hold us back anyway. So, yeah, I tend to agree. If I'm going to make a judgment call, I tend to agree with what you say precisely because of this simple rule. Yeah, it's, and again, the reason many people in Western esotericism don't understand that in Western spirituality generally is because they have naive notions about human beings as a whole. Mm. And they have also um, a certain sense of what we see as the, the strong influence of the notion of linear history. Mm. You know, that history is heading towards Omega. Yeah. We're heading towards heaven on earth. You know, we even see that transformed, you know, in the various apocalypticism of new age groups and, and uh, occult groups today. But again, those are all egregores just being transformed. Yeah, but this poison comes from the Abrahamic traditions because they believe in Simultaneously, they believe in heaven on earth or uh, or collapse, doomsday, not the cyclical thing. Right. And, uh, and that spills over to other areas than just religion. Right. And you see, you know, and it exists in, in Indian and Tibetan philosophy as well. I mean, they have their, 
of the great war you know they have a they do have an apocalyptic aspect as well but it's cyclically uh exactly worked in yeah but that's still there and and that's why you see a lot of appeal to that i mean the the, the dalai lama isn't out there giving you know kala chakra initiations you know just for the fun of it <laughs> you know you, you you're those are your recruitment papers into the great army of of the galuka right Right. Yeah, but I, nobody's saying bad stuff can't happen, even on a collective level. Just look at Atlantis or the antediluvian fall. But I'm, I'm just saying this notion, that what's special with the Abrahamic is that it's now or never. This is it. Right. And it influences us. That's a powerful aggregate. Look at the neocons. One of the reasons they are trying to maintain the suffering in, in Palestine, Israel, is that they want to bring about... Uh, the second coming of Christ and sure. this Jehovah's Witness kind of thing that everybody's going to be, you know, the, what what you call it in American fundamentalism, the, they have a term for it rapture. where people elevate. Yeah, the rapture. Rapture, rapture, exactly. But, well, you, but you, see the, you see the same thing in, in the naive leftist politics too, that we're going to just create all these social service programs and people are just going to take advantage of them and they're going to stop being stupid and hurting themselves and they're going to grow up. I worked in social services. I worked in housing projects. I mean, mm. I worked with all sorts of people from the bottom to the top, and it's not going to happen. Mm. So you, you can spend as much money as you want on these programs. It's it's not going to make it go away. Good point. You know, because it's, it is a very good point because it's it's an important point that is is ignored by a majority of people in human in, in social services, as well as in the the why we see such a political bias towards leftist politics in contemporary esotericism. Mm. I didn't know that. Because they, st they still suffer from the naive notion of human potential. Right. And a lot of them never have any experience with it. That's yeah, the other yeah. thing. Again, I worked on the ground. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was talking to someone and I told them where I once worked and they looked at me because they know, well, you know, how many shootings have I witnessed? Mm. How many, you know, problems have I experienced or seen? So there, there's a level, and this goes to the aspect of what we were talking about earlier about angels and demons, you know, and people and, and the horror, the Lovecraftian horror. I'm, I'm tying this all in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That if you haven't seen the extreme horror of what people are capable of mm. and, 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 and across the spectrum to all the wonderful goodness they're capable of too. You know, I'm beginning to put this in the framework of this is the nature of the experience of existence. Mm. If you have this all or nothing, then you're just going to think, you know, we got to bring about the rapture or we just don't spend enough on on, on, on this social service program, well, <laughs> you know, or, or whatever. There's, there's going to be an, ex the point is, if you have an all or nothing view, you're going to find a bias yeah. towards your preferred egregoric ideal of how to bring about heaven on earth, whether it's through warfare or through mm. forcing people to be good for their own mm. good, mm -hmm. which is what we see with, again, this notion of how people are interacting with another through restraint and uh, what you can and cannot talk about. Those are egregores as well. Yeah, but you know what? I want to defend them because um, your co former colleagues, they had to buy into that egregore to be able to, you know, function in this system. If if they all became like, oh, cynics, basically saying, oh, 
I don't believe this is possible. They wouldn't be able to do the job, <laughs> and their and their but role is to alleviate suffering. At that, no, it's it's not it's not about that. You you're making a mistake here. Okay, let's hear. And the terrible mistake is they had to buy into it. No, you don't have to buy into it to alleviate suffering. What you have to buy into is that there's only so much suffering you can alleviate. Mm. And when I worked with drug addicts, I understood what the attrition rate would be, meaning that out of so many hundred people that I deal with, how many are going to die? Well, first of all, they're all going to die, yeah. <laughs> but how many of them are going to die addicts? Yeah, yeah. So you have to, and, and there is the trauma. There is the terror, the trauma that you, you recognize that you're really only able to help X percentage and it's a low number. Uh. So this is where it goes into is, and again, unless you've done it and been there, it's a whole different world. So my point is the idealism is the self-destruction. The over wait, wait, wait a minute. Are you saying that if you have that realistic perspective, you can still do a good job? Yes, because you know that you're working for, that's your success story. That's your success mm, okay. story. Mm. You're focusing on your successes. Mm. Look, if a general goes into battle and they focus on the death of every soldier, right. they'll never go into battle. No, no. So it's the quality, it's not the quantity. Right. But what happens is, you know, it all depends on then these other forces come into play, these other value structures, these other factors. Mm, mm. And that becomes where the problems set in for the individual. At the end of the day, what we're looking at here is we have to recognize that we exist in a, in a phenomenal environment in which suffering is uh, kind of, we'll say that's kind of optional. It's a perspective, but there will be pain. There will be loss. Mm -hmm. How we address that and deal with it is important. The problem we see in occult circles is that many people are deceptive to themselves. I want to go study magic. And this is where we get into the publishing aspect. It's the spell of the week book. It's the, the book that's going to make my life better. Right. You know, this is going to solve all my problems. Mm. My problems are going to go away. Mm. When you engage the paranormal, in fact, it's the opposite. In fact, when you engage in the psychic dimension, more of your problems come to the surface because it, they were right beneath it anyhow. Now you've just decided to find out what psychic forces, intrapsychic forces are making you tick. Now let's take that and put this on a larger level. And that is the level of the group, which is now the egregore. And the egregore is an organizing entity can either direct those intrapsychic forces to help you resolve them, or it can use them against you. Mm. All right. Uh, but I want to point to another reason than because we, we've been focusing now on the bad egregore of the Abrahamists and how that spilled over everywhere. And, and the fact that we live in a cyclical uh, universe. But if you look at technology, Ooh. I can see why people buy into the notion of that there is possibility to transform the entire collective world on a or the better level. Because they, when you watch technology, that's what's going on there. I'm not saying yes. modern technology is, is a blessing and good. I mean, look at 5G and a lot of negative aspects about it. So that's not the point if it's a good thing or not. The point is there is an actual evolution there that doesn't seem cyclical sure. unless you go back to pre-Diluvian stuff where we may have had advanced te technology, although 
it looks like it's an entirely different based technology than what we're having now. So because people watch that, look, wow, we get we can do the same in health. That's where you get notions like transhumanism and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. AI, oh, we can have, we can make, and by the way, I'd speculated that AIs can be taken over by egregores. I want you to address. Oh, I think so. Oh, no. Yeah? I think technology is in it. I was talking to a friend about this regarding um, his classical Taoist instruction, which was magical Taoism. And the way they view any screen or surface is viewed as a psychic portal. And I, I think that um, I think that because of its subtle nature, uh, electronic technology is probably more vulnerable mm. to some kind of psychic influence than others. Why? Because it's in motion, it's dynamic and it's subtle. Mm. Okay. Do you understand where the, where the entryway is? Yeah. Okay. As opposed to say a hammer, you know, how, <laughs> yeah. how much psychic input, you know, it takes, there's more energy needs to be used to, to, to affect a hammer than needs to be to affect a computer. Mm. And probably a very good example of that was with, um, Boy, his name escapes me at the moment, but uh, he was involved. He was, I think, uh, uh, what do they call him? Uh, psychic number one or zero zero one at the uh, the early psychic research that was taking place for the army in Maryland. Mm. He blew out the computer systems in in NATO and on the other side of the the you know the in East Germany too, mm. and that's how he got recruited. Right. This is that. So the, I do believe that artificial, what we think of as artificial intelligence, these different computer programs, I think that they can be hijacked. And I think the purpose in many ways, they're being designed to be hijacked yeah, yeah. for the notion of transhumanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but isn't it weird that the technology and that spills over to health and many other things, that that seems to be going in this direction. And there is this idea out there that when human beings because of our karma, because of what we're supposed to experience at this level, when we reach a certain level where we become like gods because of the technology, that's when it all collapses and resets. Well, we see that notion too in in some of the Indian philosophies, the Indian stories of the wars of the asuras between the demigods and the gods. They're very technologically oriented. Yeah. And we see that theme reoccurring often. I think the, you know, technology is wonderful. It's what's allowing us to have this conversation. Mm. It's what's allowing us not to be struggling just to survive. So when we, when we look at technology and we look at how it has come about, it's like anything. It becomes a, a philosophical view. That view becomes a limiting factor. And it seeks and it seeks to self-propagate. So we want more of it. Yeah. And since the benefits are so easy to experience and often so desirable, it can be very difficult for us to look at the downside. Yeah, we become dependent on it. So we are kind of right. trapped. We have to go along with that egregore because we're dependent. Exactly. And it's like any egregore, it is difficult to see the downside because we're only focusing on that which we enjoy and benefit from. So if you have an occult group or an esoteric group 
that's very small, they benefit from that size. Says, this is very good. You know, we, we've got a good group here. Things are going well. We benefit well. And what they'll fail to do is see the downside of that, which is, well, how are we going to be around in 20 years? You know, how do we, how do we find new members to keep this going? Same thing with something that's super big. This is great. We've got all these people. We've got all these resources. What's the downside? Oh, man, you know, you get personality issues. And, and sometimes you get people in there who really shouldn't be there. They become more of a problem than they're worth or the watering down factor, whatever it happens to be. Health. So we have to just look at everything as what is the strength and weakness we're dealing with and just be honest about it. And technology, it's very difficult to get people to recognize the weaknesses because you look at what can be done now on your phone and that phone is more powerful than all of the computing systems that put the, uh, man, to the moon. man on the yeah, moon. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just more powerful, it's more powerful by a factor. I mean, I, I don't remember what it is, but it's a huge factor. Mm. So trying to get people to say, you know, too much of the good thing is a vice, too much of a good thing is now a clipothic. Because mm. how did the clipoth form? They didn't happen. The clipoth formed when there was too much energy in that point, and it broke. The shells broke. The container broke. You're talking about the cliff forts in Kabbalah? Yes. Mm, okay. So we have to look at, you know, too much of a virtue is a vice. Mm. Too much of, and, you know, again, I was talking about life on earth, the life in the, in the created realms. It's about that balance. Yeah, but when technology starts ruining the world, nature and stuff, obviously, but, but it's so interesting because we, we've been beating up on, the Abrahamic influence in terms of the Abrahamic religions, in terms of political ideologies, like, you know, this idea that, no, it's not cycle. It's we begin primitive and we end up advanced. Right. Nowhere is that stronger today, yeah. today than in scientism and uh, transhumanism. Right. They really believe that human beings will evolve to a super advanced level because of technology. Yes. In health and everything. And, and in a way, that's the, probably the biggest war going on uh, between Egregorus is this, the traditional and ancient and cyclical view versus this, I don't know what to call it, but this redemption, linear evolutionary view. I don't know. Do you have a better word for it? No, I don't. I mean, that, that's pretty much the terms I've used. It's, it's trying to look at things in, in that linear onward and upward approach versus cyclic and, yeah. and trying to get people to reconcile these, you know, that, that things tend to, yes, we are moving forward in that upward adaptive view technologically and intellectually and in many wonderful ways. At the same time, uh, we have to recognize the cyclic nature of things and that these two views um, need to, uh, at least with us as individuals need to be, to be harmonized because if we stay too cyclical, then nothing changes. Ah, you know, there's really, yeah, yeah. You know what? Th that's a spiral, right? Then it's a spiral. That's right. Then we have the spiral. The spiral means we recognize that things are continually m repeating themselves on different levels, not repeating, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were coming back just like the seasons, but we have more experience each time. We have more intellectual 
more spiritual, more emotional uh, experiences to integrate into that framework once again. So we're able to expand. Uh, whereas if it's simply cyclical, there's no real growth. It's very slow and problematic. And if it's simply linear, uh, then it's going to, it's going to hit a cliff. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be a point where it can't go anymore. No, no, it has to be two steps ahead and one back. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Brilliant. But those are, those are intellectual egregores. And I'm sure if we were to follow it out, we could find some kind of, uh, uh, entity of some kind that uh, in some uh, mythology or, or hierarchy somewhere, I'm, I'm serious, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, is behind it. Yeah. I, I've often used the term, uh, ach, uh, what is it, Achraman from, uh, from Steiner, because I think that fits in well, his view. Yeah, of from, from Zoroaster, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah, from Zoroaster. But, but you know, Steiner made it popular with his, uh, his notions of that in, in his, his view. Yeah. So I use that at times to describe the kind of existence that we have with technology at the moment. Mm. But people shouldn't underestimate egregores. I experienced firsthand, you know, let's go back to our time in Armok. I remember when there was a huge power battle there. Oh, I remember it well. <laughs> yeah. I, I went out of Armok around, it was sometimes in the 90s. I, I forget when, actually. But it was, I didn't last long after Christian took over. I lost it a About few. the same time I probably left. Yeah, probably. And I saw in my local lodge, uh, one of the reasons I, I left the organization was that I saw how people ex could, because, you know, this shit obviously was descending into even local branches, right? Uh, it starts on the top and it yeah. goes like shockwaves down in the system. And most people there were good guys. They wanted the best, good high ethics, but yeah. the, because of the egregore mm -hmm. and the cult thing, I'm not saying Armok was a cult, but it sure. had sectarian aspects. So they could see an injustice happened and they would try to rationalize it with their cognitive dissonance because they identified so much with the egregore. So they would let people suffer and be victimized and not apply their uh, personal ethics. And I think... Freemasons, at least the Freemasonic rituals and traditions in Norway, mm -hmm. have built into the rituals something very interesting. Because there they say, and that didn't happen in, in Armok at least, there they say in the initiation, they say that a Mason should always let their personal conscience and ethics and uh, understanding come before the organization and the powers and the authorities. Okay, good. That's a very interesting, and I'm, I'm not saying just because they have it, it works, but at, that's a minimum of what you should expect in order to battle this sheep herding that the Egregore will do with you, if not. You understand what I mean? Yes, Al, but I think the interesting part is to, to look at Freemasonry and Amwork, first of all, as two different entities, and, and Freemasonry is a fraternal organization, not an esoteric one, although it has esoteric qualities and aspects to it. It isn't inherently what we think of as a spiritual practice organization, meaning methods and teachings are given. Mm. Uh, it has qualities to it, but it is not the same. Mm. Uh, within Amwork, uh, I know that there were some statements about the freedom of conscience in there. Uh, I don't remember where and when. I, I know they did exist. Uh, and of course, the period you were referring to took place at the end of the 80s into the early 90s. And uh, listeners can easily look this up uh, in Wikipedia, there's some aspects of it. 
of uh, the Stewart affair in which Gary Stewart was deposed as imperator under various financial scandals. Uh, it has been a point that is interesting to note that for several years prior to that, uh, there were problems in that Grand Lodge, and you can find what was known as the Rosicrucian Chronicles, which was a physical paper or a newsletter of some type that was sent out from officers, disgruntled officers in the Grand Lodge about what was happening mm. in Amwork at that time. I was uh, saw them, I read them, I had copies of them, I, I have PDFs now, you can't find them. But what's critical is how do those problems come about? And, and it had to do with various aspects of people wanting to be in control and uh, not necessarily going to say who was right and wrong there because that's still a hot button issue for several people. But one of my initial concerns was how when Christian Bernard, the son of Raymond Bernard, became imperator, how Gary Stewart's picture was removed from lodges. Mm. That is, he was erased from history. And that I had a problem with. You know, if he was human and made mistakes or errors or something, that's one thing. But to erase him from history is to deny the fact that he even existed or was there. Very Stalinist. And I had a problem. Right. It was Stalinist. I had a problem with that. What I also had a problem with was something that had never existed before. And those were loyalty oaths. That was very strange. And I've seen variations of that even recently that were sent to me. Uh, those types of things I felt were not needed. I mean, either you were loyal, whatever that meant, or you weren't, whatever that meant, and you left or just went your own way or you stayed. But that, the, that certain things are being requested or required that increasingly created a kind of um, cultish atmosphere. Now, I have to tell you this, and this is very important to understand. Prior to this, the organization, of course, was very big. There were about 45,000 members in the English-speaking Grand Lodge, most of those in the U.S. and Canada, if I remember correctly. I heard they had 6 million all over the world uh, at, the, at the maximum. I don't know if that's true. Yes, at the maximum yeah. peak, yeah. yes. And that probably would have been a few years earlier or at about the same time. Mm. Now, that Grand Lodge after this affair collapsed down to a point of about 5,000 members. Yeah, of course. It is since rebuilt, but you know it's not the same in many ways. Now, the point here is, is that, yes, we joked about it. I was very involved, and I have relationships, good friendships, and still do with former Grand Lodge officers. I was technically a Grand Lodge officer myself. And we joked about what we called Amorkians. You know, these are kind of true believer types. <laughs> yeah. But these were often very nice people, and I enjoyed them, and I liked their company, mm. uh, even if they were a bit fluffy. I don't know how to put uh, it, yeah. you know, just enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. You know, they're very, you know, a little dogmatic at times, but at least you could count on them for things. Mm. could trust them with your house plans. Yeah. Now, that being said, this is different than the kind of dogmatic self-importance that I see in a lot of what's left of Amwork today. A lot of uh, really good sense that we have the truth. Mm. Now, I don't think that's coming out of Grand Lodge as much, as, but it not it's not necessarily being discouraged. Mm. 
it's very good to have pride in your organization. It's very good to have that. You need to have that, otherwise why belong to it? But we have to be careful that that pride does not get in the way of practice or that practice makes you think you actually know what other practices are too when you don't. And I've, I've seen that kind of statement where, where there's a statement of superiority when, when they don't even understand their own history. Again, they don't understand their own history. Now, it's easy to pick on them because, again, we were members and we, we've pointed this out. Mm. But what that was happening is that very thing you were talking about, that battle of the egregores. And I saw people who were good friends for decades become very split over this issue and have see friendships pulled apart, lodges pulled apart. Mm. Man, my robes were stolen at that time from my Martinist robes. Jeez. You know, and... and um, and they were but made- that's exactly where I was going because, okay. yeah, I think there was a war against egregores taking place within Amork because Bernard represented, because in, in Europe, in France, they had developed more independently without the control and insert of the Americans who doesn't even understand French. And this had been going on long before Raymond Bernard. No, no, I mean, uh, Christian Bernard yes. and Gary Stewart. So I think it, it kind of peaked it kind of got their release when that, those two guys took over. Because with the, the former boss, uh, Ralph Lewis, uh, he was like, I, I call him a museum curator. He had like <laughs> the whole structure where under his, you see, that's a benefit actually of autocracy. <laughs> it couldn't erupt under his regime, but it could when he left. So I, I'm totally with you. I think it was a clash of egregores taking place. Well, and I think there's more to it than that. Let's hear. I think there's, I think that you, you see the problem being is that there was the, the notion of the French felt that Rosicrucianism had to be French. Right. Right. There, there was that aspect. Mm-hmm. There was a very strong cultural egregore uh, at work. And uh, this, you know, my own experiences, well, well, first of all, Jean Dubuis and, and Raymond Bernard did not get along very, ter- very well. Mm. And, uh, there's often the question of what would have happened if if uh, Dubuis had been the grandmaster. What direction? Let, let me just fill in people. Go ahead. Yeah. So Dubuis is the, is a guy who founded something called Philosophers of Nature, neo alchemical organization. But he came out as so many modern esotericists have done out of our work. That that is correct, and and he had his own contacts there, but his the the organization grew because of those contacts within it, mm. that his, his, his experience, he, he was uh, quite well respected within the, the Martinist circles uh, as well. Mm. Now, so we have that framework um, taking place. And I believe from my own encounters with both of them at that time, both Gary Stewart and, and Christian Bernard, I believe that Gary Stewart was uh not up to the task. Mm. I think there was probably some kind of crisis that took place. Many of us believe because there was a period there where he was kind of wild-eyed. We called it the wild-eyed look days. <laughs> right. And you may you may remember the photographs. They weren't they weren't encouraging. Right. Um, but it could have been a part, and this is the way I describe it. And I don't know if this is true. I describe, you know, you're told about these invisible masters and this great hierarchy and all this stuff, and now suddenly you're in charge and you sit down at the desk and you're waiting for them to come through the room and they're not, you know, and, and, and now, now it all rests on you. I, I interpreted it as he was paranoid because of all the backstabbing and yes. scandals. Yes. yes. Yeah. Mm. Right. 
Right. And, and that's very discouraging and you don't want that to get out to the membership mm. because it's again, ideals. The idealism was the basis yeah. of the membership in the egregore. Mm. Okay. And then we have a uh, uh, Christian there who he was just, he was just felt this was his birthright. He was a crusader. Yeah. This was his birthright. Mm. And um, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I have more to say, but I'll leave it at that. I, yeah, you yeah. know, so I, I think that you, you, between these two, this is my birthright. And, you know, this is again, uh, uh, wow, this is huge. There's all this stuff going on. How do I manage all the, these affairs? Mm. The, the situation was ripe for some kind of collapse. And when that collapse took place, it significantly and seriously devastated the organization. But I that had to take place on a psychic level first, by the way. Mm. Now, it is my theory. It's, I'm just throwing it out there for discussion for you guys to banter about on, on the off time. Mm -hmm. Two things are essential in the time we live in for the so-called more negative forces to prevail. Mm -hmm. One was you needed the destruction of Amorc because it was one of the few widespread accessible organizations that had decent teachings on esotericism available. True. You needed that. So you got to destroy that mm. because these smaller groups just aren't capable of it. No. They just don't have it. Now they may be able to hold the battle on their own front, but you know, <laughs> they're fighting a partisan war. <laughs> that's what they're doing. So they're not going to influence culture in a collective level. That's right. They're not going to influence culture. No. So let's be honest there. The other is you need to destroy the Catholic Church. And the reason being is for all its problems, it is one of the, it is one of the last vestiges of that tradition that still has an operative armory known as the Roman ritual of exorcism. That's a new one. Yeah. So you, you look at the, and there's other factors I can bring up too, but I'm just putting those two out yeah. there. Those are just yeah. two for consideration. There's a few others, but just... I want you to think about this because if you're talking about, as was it Rene Guillon talked about the crack in the wall, mm. particularly with psychic phenomena and that type of thing, UFOs, you know, you, you need to destroy those organizations which have the capacity to at least make people awake and to, to some degree defend themselves against it. Mm. And of course there are others out there as well, but when going back to Amwork, what we saw was, this battle between people and, and it was over something that was so emotional because it was ideological, really. It was about their beliefs and abstract. It was abstract. It was their belief and yeah. their, and their faith in the whole cosmic hierarchy quite literally was undermined mm. because how could the cosmic masters let this happen? Yeah. But that's theosophy. Go back hundred years to theosophy. Same thing. Right. How could the unknown superiors, how could the invisible masters, who guide and influence our imperator and grandmasters, how could they let this happen? Mm. And that was the question. And it's, you know, it's kind of ignored today, but that was the big question. Mm. And that was a crisis of faith. And, and not just on the level, and I'll tell you right, right, it wasn't just on the level of the membership. It was on the level of Grand Lodge officers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It split into, I mean, Gary continued with his own Rosicrucian. He stick to the old, uh, he actually went even further back to, to Harvey Lewis, like 100 years ago. So, so he had that 
kind of perspective. And Christian, he, I think, he introduced a lot of new stuff too. Yes, from his they, already in under his reign when he was grandmaster in France, uh, before Gary Stewart became the international head. They already, I think, even under Raymond Bernard, his father, they had already started to do their own thing, their own. And like you say, they think it, the whole notion belongs to them because they're French. So yeah, I think it's for some reason Armorc managed to have within itself a battle of egregores that then eventually manifested uh, at the level of human interaction but the big question is mm-hmm. is this it, let's say destructive forces demonic forces poisonous forces whatever you want call it forces did they enter this directly or was it through earthly vehicles like let's say cia or something you know where you, there are many human organizations that are basically drones for these <laughs> <laughs> Cliffotic forces or whatever you want to call them. I don't like the word demon because I'm in a I know, I know. I'm in a Greek Egyptian tradition <laughs> and diamond is actually a very good thing. <laughs> I know it's 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 the difficulty of language where we're we're very careful here. Yeah. Where we're having yeah. a slow conversation because we have to define so many things to make sure we're clear. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think it matters too much. I think that the the we when we make too much of a distinction between inner and outer we're again falling into the trap of dualism right right and um and materialism it is, yeah mm. yeah it's materialism it's not a chicken or the egg thing that mm. you know the the capacity to enter had to be there the immune system so to speak had to be weakened sufficiently for the infection to take place um otherwise if it wasn't it wouldn't have mattered and you know things go through cyclic histories some people believe that all this was necessary to uh, fulfill the Amorc's expiration date. It has an expiration date on it, at least on the English Grand Lodge. And then there's discussion was, does that mean- Yeah, 108 would, years, right? Uh, right, 108 years. Mm. Does that mean it would cease to exist or simply go quiet? Mm. That going quiet might fulfill that that prophecy. What matters, I think, most is that when we look at the, for me, my great uncle was involved in 27. So I have letters and sitting behind me from Harvey Lewis. Mm, Okay. mm. When we look at the, the degrading of the teachings of the quality of the teachings since then, Mm. that from the twenties to the eighties, they were really very much the same and they were very good. There wasn't as much change as many people like to think there was, but they purged a lot of the occultism was purged that they say that but i've not seen it i've looked at no i mean i mean now not not at the beginning but if you compare oh the the, well this the stuff from the the stuff that i've seen now the i'm sorry if this offends current members listening but the lessons that they're sending out on pdf which i have up into through the ninth the tenth degree are are very poor quality Mm. and they're very poor quality compared to what was once sent out. And, and I, I even recognized from my own writings, some of the things that were in the newer lessons that weren't in the old ones, but I published it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Now that's fine. I don't care about that. But what I did notice is, and this got me in trouble, was um, an emphasis on the egregore, which was never there. Mm. Amwork always acknowledged the existence of such a thing but the emphasis wasn't as strong. And I talked about that in the book, Egregores. 
And you saw that strongly in, in uh, this one. And I was actually uninvited from a, a conference, the hundredth anniversary of Johannes Kelpius Lodge. Uh, I up in Boston, I, I was invited to present there. And then I was told that I was directly uninvited by the Grand Master. I mean, this was after you quit, right? Yeah, and I, I let them know. I said, well, you know, I haven't been a member in you know 20 years. And they said, fine, but I knew all these people. Mm. They wanted me back. And I said, sure, I'll go back. And, oh, well, then can you, oh, it's for members only. Well, you didn't tell me that, mm. but okay. So I joined up again. Oh, they okay. Said, pay, the, pay the dues for three months. Right. You know, just to attend. Okay, fine. I'll do that. It's like eight bucks or 10 bucks a month by email electronically. That's fine. And they still uninvited you? And then I was uninvited. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, mm. Okay. But, it, you know, it, and I think it, that was very telling. Mm. And uh, the point is, I think it had to do with my an essay that I had published, which is still available on Vox Hermes, about the notion of egregores. Mm. And that uh, they weren't mentioned by it in name, but they did get, I think they could put two and two together. You know, that emphasis on the egregore is now so strong within the organization that what I see, and again, this is what I see, and it, it's, it's, it is clouded by social media encounters that needs to be clearly stated, mm. is that there is a lot of vocal self-congratulatory activity among membership that focuses more on their membership as a statement or badge of honor and advancement rather than on practice. And that's because so much emphasis is on the egregore. <laughs> and that wasn't there when I was in. That didn't exist. That's interesting. I remember, I think Almog was the first place where I encountered the concept. And uh, I think it was a pretty decent, uh, but they, you're right. It was never a big deal. It was just there as one of many things you had to know about. Yes, it, it was there, and you were to try and attune to it in different ways. But yeah. it wasn't. It wasn't ham-fisted, as we say. It wasn't. It wasn't pounded. You didn't hear the word repeated over and over and over and over again. <laughs> but you know, the the primary tool to connect with it was what they called a heavenly sanctum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the celestial sanctum, celestial sanctum, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah they, they, down to the technique of how you do it, and all the people who went that way. And I had, I had experiences. That I, I'm rarely personal in the podcast, but we've opened personal doors now. I'll just come clean. Sure. I had experiences at that level where I think I interacted with egregores. I saw living members, I saw dead members, mm -hmm. and of course, unknown people too. Uh, but it was a pretty, I would say, I, I felt it like a pretty comfortable, pleasant yes. place to be, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, th and that needs to be made clear, too, that it was different. It, the, the emphasis was different. The experiences were different. It wasn't a big deal. Mm. It wasn't like what we see, or at least here, what I'm getting sent to me even 20 years later. And I haven't been in in well over 25 years. Mm. Okay. But it's, it was just a different experience. And I think that in that shapes and shifts the member's ex, uh, perspective. So we can apply that now to any organization or group, by the way. That's why we're maybe going through these details with you. 
what we've just said is now applicable. You can take what we've just described and now look at your experiences in other groups, whether it's the PTA or the bowling league. Mm. I mean, how, how people can become really emotionally attached and identified with roles and perceptions or ideologies and beliefs that now cloud their very reason for beginning to, to join to begin with. Yeah. I would say the, the Armok story could also be the story of humanity itself, our culture. Yes. But an interesting, interesting thing here. If you look at occult groups, esoteric groups, orders, societies, whatever you want to call it, initiatory traditions, mm-hmm. nowhere else is this so ingrained. I mean, I mentioned Theosophy, you can mention O2O, you can mention Golden Dawn, Freemasons, Take any group and they have all experienced a similar power battle like this, yes. this Armok thing. And I think the reason, and this is just an idea I got from our conversation today, is okay. that it is precisely in such groups people are being empowered and getting the tools to interact with ent- egregores to create them, to destroy, well, not destroy, but you know what I mean, dismantle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the reason maybe more than anywhere else than there. Uh, at least a part of the reason that we see that happen there. I think that's correct because, and I don't want to get too technical here, but I will for the sake of those who have some interest in this. We talk about ego inflation. First of all, ego is not a bad thing. That's the first problem. It's what we identify with. It means I am, I am that. Mm -hmm. I am this thing. It's identifier. And, the force of ego of identification is the same as the force of liberation. You know, in, in yoga, it's the different yogas. It's the energy of the descent as we would call it forms the identifying force we call ego Mm. in the, we'll call it the ascent or initiation. That's the soul. What we we call Kundalini. Mm. It's the same energy. It's just a different identifying force or different degrees of identification. In one, in descent, the identification is more narrow and limited. In the ascent, it's more open and expansive. But it's yeah, the- let, let me throw throw in some associations so people follow. Descent sure. is the masculine uh, centrifugal. Ascent is the feminine centripetal. Ascent brings you back in, uh, in fusing with the one. Descent is the creational part of uh, the process. It's uh, the expansion of the cosmos. It's God breathing out, Brahman breathing out, as the Indians would say. Yes, they do. Or as the Kabbalists say, if you have Aya, Asher, Aya, then Aya, Asher is descent. Asher, Aya is ascent. Anyway, go on. Yes. And, and that's important to understand. So when you enter into this path, there is going to be literally an inflation. That is the energies, the airs, what you call the prana, the air, the energy is expansive. And people will identify with that expansion. And that's part of the process of being able to identify with it and disidentify with it and, and see it more precisely and accurately. So as people become more capable They develop more abilities, more skills, more accomplishments, or siddhas, as you want to call them. Mm. These, or that it's natural that there will be this sense of empowerment, expansion, inflation. The question is, how do we deal with it constructively? How do we handle it? And because of that, 
I, I agree with you that these problems are more apparent because people are expanding. Well, the problem is they're not necessarily integrating well because that's a difficult process. Yeah, yeah. The integration is a difficult process. That's all there is to it. Mm. So, right, whereas you're not going to see that as much in other areas because the degree of expansion or enhancement isn't going to be as dramatic or with as many people. You know, more, yeah, and it's more automatic there. I mean, a supporter club, for example, that egregora is, like, like we established earlier, the supporters have no clue about it. So um, it's not that dangerous even for if someone want to use an egregora. Mm -hmm. The most dangerous manifestations on earth would be those groups of people who have a conscious, aware relation to it. It just makes total sense. More so, I would say, than the Catholic Church, because although the Catholic Church does have, like you rightly point out, tools to battle certain creatures, it's been in a perpetual decay for <laughs> hundreds of, if not thousands of years. So... I just want to put that out there. Yeah, well, that's the example. I mean, the size of it. And the size, yes. I mean, prior to the, you know, prior to about the 10th or 12th century, you could do almost anything in Catholicism and get away with it as long as you appended in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's particularly true in Northern countries, Northern European countries. Mm -hmm. You can get away with a tremendous amount. But, and that's in part because you know there was no Skype, there was no no memo, mm. there was no <laughs> there was no email, <laughs> you know there was no way to to keep everything as as homogenized as as people might like. Mm. And of course, this changes over time. And really, the high point of the church, the Roman Church, might have been the Renaissance. I think in terms of esotericism and and all of that. But it's also when we see the split with the, the Protestant Reformation. Mm. So. Uh, you know, the size of it meant that inherently there were going to be many egregores or battles. Yeah. And, and not to go too far off topic, but probably one of the more interesting ones to study is the, the Jesuits. Mm. Uh, they come closest in many ways to having a, a real solid, what we would call a cult system within the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. well. Uh, and of course, they were suppressed at different times and, and have done different things. But so all of the, when you get into the large groups that you grow to a certain size where you have these fractions that develop, they have their own egregores, they fight for control. Uh, but what we're looking at in terms of our cult groups is we want to make sure that our esoteric groups are functional, that they're healthy, that they're productive, that they can exist. Um, and that they liberate, uh, they liberate people. They can help people get the tools for liberation. Yeah, instead of enslaving them. Right, and that and that they're going to be around for another generation or yeah. two or three. That it's sustainable. Mm. That's the point that we were talking about earlier, and that I did on the interview, is that current esotericism is not sustainable mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons, and that's another talk. But so we need to think about these things so that we create. We have to create healthy egregores. And, and be on the lookout, just as we are look at on our own physical and mental health for illness and prevention and cure, we have to do the same with our esoteric egregores. We have to add that what really matters in esoterica is, is the perpetuation of the liberation tradition. 
Yes. More than groups. Groups are like bodies. I'm born and eventually I decay and die. Same with groups. But if the tradition can find new vehicles, new outlets for the light. Correct. You know, I'm buying more and more into this quote unquote conspiracy theory you launched because Take a look at the Muslim world. It's the exact same problem there. You have the Sunni Islam, which is the biggest one mm-hmm. and most uh, exploited by, you know, petty powers. And then you have Shia Islam that is more close connected to esotericism. There are Sufi groups within Sunni, but there are many, many more within Shia mm-hmm. and, you know, Alevi and Bektashi. And if, if within Shia, you have different, of course, different traditions there too, but you have even in the main Shia itself can be said to have a certain aspect of occultism, whereas Sunni is much more dogmatic, much more a tool for the powers that be like Catholicism, if you like. So, and why is Shia being crushed contemporary from all directions. I, I think it's it could be uh, an aspect of it could have to do with this too. Very interesting. Well, I think that you know we have to look at what is the function, and that the things that function currently to help at least keep people in a general wellness direction, or which eventually can lead to enlightenment or liberation or something. Mm. Remember, step by step. You know, you you have to, in this battle of ideas, which is what we're engaged with Mm. on a very large scale, it always has been that way, but now it's just larger and more apparent because of technology, is um, how, where do we stand in this? How do we find our, our way and how do we help others? And the easiest way is to simply free yourself from the notion that you know for certain what is going on because you don't Mm. you know just recognize that there are things that are happening that you may or may not agree with but that's irrelevant you shouldn't even be concerned with what you agree with it's what do you know what do you understand yeah and then from that is is this helping me to liberate myself to be more awake more alert more enlightened or is it not and, and we have to get very, very selfish in that regard, in a positive way, mm. a positive selfishness, because you can only help others to the degree that you can help yourself. True. And another truism is, you know, the humbleness you, you point to, which should be our starting ground, is just the, th- the more I know, the less I know, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, uh, as the example... There's a fellow out there who several years ago wanted to purchase the institute from me. And I, I, I asked him, I said, well, what do, you, what do you mean? You know, and I thought it was very fascinating because he makes a big claim to all of his traditional connections. So why are you bothered with me? Well, I could tell you, do you know, you know whatever he's called? A corn he, man. He interviewed me several oh years ago. And it was very funny because he, um, he sent me a list of questions and, and they were quite innocent. And I answered them honestly. And he published them in his book very quickly. He didn't change anything. So I, I don't have okay. anything against him in that mm. regards. He did mm. not misrepresent me in any way. You were lucky. However, 
it was very odd. I, I didn't quite see what the, the reason was. And he was trying to connect it in with, um, well, come on, who's that fellow, the Griffin with the Golden Dawn and the Griffin's yeah. Golden Dawn somehow. Yeah. Well, anyhow, th there was no misrepresentation of me in the book. The book was quickly withdrawn because the OTO sued him. Right. That's the, the They have like a gossip perspective on the history of esotericism. Well, it's very sad. It's even worse because the usual extreme self-righteous arrogance of all things mm. uh who was it basically a a gossip online gossip rag about all that was wrong with every every personality in either spirituality or religion or esotericism in their perspective right. it was just terrible but a lot of these folks they do very but yeah they you have to question their research yeah and, and these people can't be trusted because like you said, you experience yourself. They write to you, and then bam, it's going to be published or it's going to be abused. Mm -hmm. Like this crazy guy, he basically takes work from other people and translates it. But I'll say this: yes, he is lifting a lot of good information because he knows how to sniff down the source, like Gerard Galtier's book on the uh, Le Fils de Cagliostro. Oh yes, very good book. Right. So he uses stuff like that. I give him that. But the way he presents it, it's, it's chaotic. It's, it's a very childish uh, perspective. It's like, it's, like I said, it's like a gossip column on. Uh, and and he, he reveals very superficial understanding. Granted, he's dealing with history here mm -hmm. who did what, when, etc., or joined what, when. But he still, know, he still manages to have a very, I mean, give me give me Gael Gaultier or Serge Kailer anytime. Those guys know how to write. And he doesn't. So and they were and they were directly involved on they they even if they weren't practitioners, there's a strong sympathy. Yeah. You know, it, a it's respect, like, I would say. Respect yes. is better word. Yeah. Yes. But they are practitioners, you know. They're Memphis Mistraim, they're Martinists, yeah. Mm -hmm. Masons. Well, even 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 Antoine Favre was a, a Martinist in his early days. Right. It's not well known, but he was. Yeah, I know. But yeah, in the esoteric groups in Europe who works traditional, there is like a knowledge about these crooks. They're, they're all lepers in their eyes, a collection of crooks. And that's what happened to the alchemist Arthur. I don't think he lives anymore. Arthur, what's his name again? Art. Um, old-timer in alchemy, guaranteed you, you know him, probably a friend of yours. And this crazy guy... I know, I know the name. Uh, Art Conken. 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 Yeah, and this okay. crazy guy uh, managed to get under, you know, he, he took him in and he thought he was a genuine representative of some traditions in Europe. And he didn't know it, but he was recorded and everything went on. And he used it and pretended he was the leader of the Illuminati. First off, yeah. <laughs> first off, like just believing that exists, you know, with membership and everything. And then he was the leader. And so he abused art, unfortunately, because I like art uh, or liked. I don't know. Does he live anymore? Or? I believe that he passed away between one and two years ago. Yeah, that may, may be true. And he had an excellent library. So, but he was abused. He was taken advantage of by by cretins like this. I know. Okay. And by the way, when I observe how many so-called orders operate, I have much more respect for creation, like what you did. Instead of having this, 
you know, ego inflated. You know, they're so focused on lineages, on history, because they don't have any, or, or top secrets, because they don't have any. <laughs> and they almost operate like cults, some of them. Yes. And all sorts of weird figures there, you know, name it. Then it's much better to just cut the crap, mm-hmm. create a semi-exoteric organization about the mysteries like you've done, and just keep like a, an academic school schooling system like you've done much better than these theater orders as i call them yeah and we're focused on practice i mean we almost everything we do is practice oriented right and 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 the reason being is at the end of the day we're asking the hard questions that and we ask people to ask that themselves i mean the the your lineage is is a beginning your your true growth comes from your personal practice so what are you doing? You know, why are you doing it? And what, what can you expect to get from it? These are difficult questions that need to be asked and answered because that's the only way you're going to grow. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Sure. So there's a lot of dubious figures out there and they just more and more and more. I mean, back in the day, you only had Crowley. <laughs> Maybe good, Jeff, too. But now it's like an army of those guys. And that's what people think esotericism is when they encounter it online, which is a tragedy. So anyway, hopefully we can give them a better, better perspective today. Yeah, that would be really wonderful. Mm. And uh, the the young I've I had to give an education to, um, and an education about the sins of political correctness too. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of the internet doesn't tell me anything, the internet doesn't say they exist, or something like this. And I say, and if there's a God in heaven, it never will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but just because you don't know about it doesn't mean it's not there. The internet is not the end-all, be-all of esotericism or yeah. information. But, but this is a disease you see on many levels that if people are not aware of something, they think it doesn't exist. And if you tell them anything, mm-hmm. right. science, whatever, and if you try to tell them, they're skeptical because they didn't hear about it. <laughs> That's a solecism, a philosophical solecism, uh, like a disease. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, you, our starting point should be humility and I know nothing. And that's all right. Yeah. Yeah, that should be our starting point, but it's not anymore, it seems. And I blame the internet for that. <laughs> well, I just find that a little amusing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it, it's so true. Yeah. So now the last thing I want to take up with you before we go to your books and your practical stuff, um, because I, I kind of hinted to it in the beginning, and it may not be that related to egregores, but it's a super interesting point. And while I have you here, mm-hmm. you especially, I need to take it up with you. And that's the body of light. Mm. This idea that when we die, because look at this, if there is a counter tradition, as some say, uh, this is th- that is these forces that try to keep us down, that try to keep us in ignorance, that want to harvest our energy instead of us being liberated. And they attack stuff like occult groups that could be tools for liberation. Gnosis, I mean, look at what happened to the Gnostics. Mm-hmm. Now, if this is true, then they should be very interested in stopping us from having uh, control of our own transition, our own death process. Because if we, uh, if more and more people are able to steer and maneuver uh, in between worlds, 
mm-hmm. uh, in the reincarnation process, then more enlightened people will come back. We will have more retain more memory of our former lives. It is a threat. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, if the notion of a diamond body, uh, the the Pythagoreans call it the augoides, mm-hmm. the body of light, whatever. If that is a real thing, then I think it's connected here. What is your thoughts? Oh, it is. It's definitely, and and, and let me point out. The only thing you need to ask about a spiritual teaching, and you should get a clear answer to this, is what will this do for me while I'm alive? And what will this do for me when I'm dead? And you need to have a clear answer to that. Hmm. And the purpose of meditation is to develop a, a focal point of stability of consciousness free from external stimulation. We retain consciousness because of the amount of sensory input affecting our brains every second. When we enter into meditation, in theory, that decreases, or at least our awareness of it decreases. And we have to be able to maintain awareness, stability of awareness, free from sensory input. Most people don't reincarnate because of an idea. They reincarnate because of a habit, (laughs) habituation. Right. Just as you wake up from a nightmare because you want to wake up from a nightmare, well, where do you go? You go into your body, so to speak, and wake up. Now, this is important because you need to develop that stability of awareness so that when you are no longer have a physical form to provide that platform, which it is a platform for you, you can self-create it as a self-creating being in the astral without it disintegrating because most astral forms are like soap bubbles. They disintegrate. Mm. It's like asking a 12-year-old, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be a fireman. I want to be a zoologist. I want to be an astronaut. Just as, you know, changes. So we have to be able to develop that mental process of concentration to be able to create the proper psychic vehicle, which is an energetic and mental vehicle to sustain consciousness with. And that continuity of consciousness is what provides us a vehicle so that memory is retained. And with that memory, which is what we go over so in detail in the book, uh, Between the Gates, Lucid Dreaming, Astral Projection, and the Body of Light, in Western Esotericism, which is a whole story. That was a disaster getting that published. There's a whole story behind that. Talk about the Demiurge not being pleased, right? <laughs> So you you have to have that. The single most important practice you can have is the development of the body of light. The single most important one. Right. Because with it, all of your other psychic faculties will come online, to use that idea, that that phrase. Mm. And um, that's why it's very critical. And for And for all the reasons you've said. And that's why organizations that don't focus on it or something like it will focus instead on, well, you're probably not going to be able to develop that. So what we're going to do is focus on the egregore. Right, right. Okay, well, that's a good mechanism. You know, that's a good intermediary, but it's not the same as your own individual status. Mm. And it's much easier to be, you take an advantage of. Uh, correct, correct. Right. Hmm. 
You know what? I think we are peeking into an abyss here that would take an o- another entire show. And I think maybe it's better you come back in the future and we discuss your, another book, the one you mentioned, where we discuss stuff like lucid dreaming, etc. We could probably continue some of these points there, especially the last one well, here. You, oh, that would be wonderful. So, well, yeah, that would be wonderful. Just anytime you like, just let me know and we can discuss that because that's critical for the path. It's critical for the individual. Exactly. And of course, for the individual and whatever group or people they may be working with as well, so that they can know what is important to focus on and what some of the signals are for their work being productive and Mm. useful. Mm. But this notion of the body of light part is the key. Um, A lot of these groups just don't have that information. No, they don't. And basically everything we we do, has to do with preparing for death. And the most powerful ritual I've ever experienced in my life, and I've been in a lot of ritual, uh, I visited all the groups, Tibetans, you name it. And I was present at, uh, I've been so lucky as to be present at the death ritual where they, mm-hmm. where there was, when we initiate who had died, this death ritual is kind of uh, connect with uh, uh, Gregora. And help the dying. It is creating a, I mean, I'm not giving details, so I can talk about this in general. Sure. Creating, a, I think, a portal, like a, a kind of a, creating some kind of energy without going into details. And then invoke the brother or sister who's recently departed and bind them into the center of the place where this is taking place mm-hmm. and then spru- uh, what you call it when you get some extra thrust kind of throw them into their the path uh, further so create this energy ritually invoke the person and then guide that person further into the the other world and okay. it's all done with lots of tools like sound is being made chanting uh, recitations actions uh, it's the most powerful. Uh, like I, I, I was there with another from Norway, and he was in tears. It was annoying actually because snot and every I had to hold his hand right, and he got <laughs> snot on it and everything. So, but okay, <laughs> but that's how powerful. I was just blown out of my socks, okay. and and I realized, oh my god, man, it's all about. It's all about the death process. And it's wonderful. Nothing like that in Armok. And I, I hardly actually encountered that perspective in Armok. Okay. So, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And I didn't know you had even written about it until now. <laughs> so um, I, I saw it now that you mentioned the book. So I'm going to get that. Well, book the, there's a whole story. The book was a disaster getting out. It was just, it was just such. Yeah, what was that? Well, it's a long story, but at least it's done when we're. When we have time, I'll tell you the, the backstory of the book too. Yeah, okay. But the uh, the saving grace, and we'll talk about this in the future, mm-hmm. of Amwork is, in my mind, the ninth degree. Uh, cloud of obscurity? The cloud and assumption. Right, right, right. Those two practices are fundamental to everything. Mm. Did you see, uh, there was a book in the 70s, very good book. Uh, I don't know who the author is. I tried to find out. It's a normal name, but he issued several books. One of them was on the cloud. I, I think that book was called Invisibility. Yes. Richard something. Richard. Uh, Steve Richards. Steve Richard. So is that a real name or is it a pseudonym? Do you know? Don't know. I couldn't tell you, but. Uh, Did you get his other books? 
I, I read them. Yeah. I read several of them. I, I like um, all of them. Yeah. I mean, they are at a simple level, but he's really addressing the mysteries there. Levitation. Yes. Uh, chance or something. Well, I have people who are working just on the teachings of the old lessons, seventh, eighth, and ninth degree. Right. Okay, that's all. I think the the method Armok uses for the cloud is far superior to the method they use in Servants of the Lights or in OTO. They're using ritual magic. I don't think that's as effective as this. No, it's not. Mm. It's not. And and we have it's well, we can go into it at length because I got to get my dog out there. But yeah, yeah. in the future, I'll have uh, hopefully I'll be able to have some uh, a paper to publish on it within the institute. Mm. Um, but we'll talk about that in the future. Yeah, we will. So uh, we have that then and talk more about your work. But is there something we haven't covered you think that we should cover? No, I think we should at all. I think the Amwork one might be one of, of worthy discussion uh, because it has been 30 years. Yeah. And it's almost like it's been forgotten. Yep. Okay. And now, finally, your million books. Let's start with that. Okay. Jesus, man, you've been uh, prolific the last years. <laughs> How many books? Oh, look at this. You got a book called The Liturgy of Hermes. Yes. I have to, I have to buy this book. Um, <laughs> how interesting. Yeah, see, this is, uh, this is from your ritual series. I see how you're doing it. Okay. That, that's a okay. very nice practice, by the way. Oh, yeah. How many books have you written? That depends on how you count. <laughs> right. Uh, for English. Oh, oh, you know, there's some in the pipeline, so it's just safe to say around 30. 30. See, back when we used to communicate uh, in the, Al where was it? Was it in the Alchemy Forum? Mm -hmm. uh, it, I believe it, so. It may have been, um, what's his name? Adam McLean's Forum. Mm -hmm. Or it may have been in Alt Armok. Were you ever in Alt Armok? Boy, that sounds familiar, but I can't place it. I don't think so. Long ago. It's, it's like the early internet. Anyway, back then you hadn't written one book. So that means that you have written probably more than one book per year. Well, it's this way. Um, I wrote my first book, the way I explain it, mm -hmm. after I probably wrote my first article with about... Um, uh, I was probably doing this for... 15 years before I wrote my first article on esotericism. Right. I want to put that in perspective compared to what we see going on today. Yeah. And then I wrote my first book. I think I've been 20 years mm -hmm. or maybe more, maybe 25. I'd have to check the, well, let's, let's do this. Let's, I mean, I can do the dates backwards for you. Uh, I think it was 2005 alchemy came out. So if we go backwards, 95, 85, yeah, so about 25 years in before I wrote my first book. Yeah. So that's the framework. And, and that's kind of something I've been talking about quite a bit lately is, you know, this framework for esotericism is fundamentally not functional, mm. not sustainable, and the reasons why. And, and one of it has to do with is how we approach it and how we approach authors and teachers within it. Yeah. And, and that falls into the egregore concept as well. Yeah, it does. Um, so when I started writing, I, I actually wrote two books for Llewellyn back to back. Uh, the Kabbalah was next, which is ironic because it went out of print in English, but was continued to be in print in other languages. And I put it back in print in English. Mm. 
then, of course, my book in Freemasonry with them went out of print in English, although it's, it's doing very well in other languages. But we've just gotten it back in English with a new version, a new edition with uh, Inner Traditions for this fall. So I had a great deal of material under my belt by the time I wrote my first four books. And it was how I got that information that is important, how I got that experience yeah. and the framework that it took place in. And then... But then that allowed. Yeah, but but look, look. I know that you, yeah. in addition, have uh, you have also established. Uh, I think you call it the Institute of Hermetic Studies or Science Studies. Yes, Institute for Hermetic Studies. Yes. So I'm assuming you're also writing there. Yeah. So what we did is a lot of the work which you see for that then ends up being published in our either monographs or our study guides. Right. Or we have three. We have monographs, which are smaller books, of course on select topics and we have study guides, which are study guides to topics. And then we have, which is based on lectures and courses. Yeah. And then we have um, collections of essays. So, you know, when, when I do a blog post or I do, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 of these after a while, we have to, you know, sort through them by topic and subject matter and then compile them for publication. But these are for members only, right? Not really. No, we don't. Oh, we, okay. Okay. No, member membership is is kind of a loose concept because mm. we we want people to have access to the information. But again, uh, let me be very clear on this. I, I want you to read it, but the problem what we have now in esotericism is there isn't a sense of commitment. Mm -hmm. um, the whole structure of it is just not healthy mm. because we need people to know what a healthy organization is in course of study to begin with. That's the first thing. Yeah. But then we also need them to commit to it. I mean, I said, you know, the Institute, we have a lot of material online at Teachable, but it's really like a college course, courses. Yeah. yeah. You know, you have to apply yourself. You have to join the study groups. You have to put the time and the resources and the energy in. And, and you've got to give yourself four to eight years. Yeah. Yeah, and that's all. That's like asking forty. What are you out of your mind? <laughs> well, and, and let me be very clear about this. You look at a traditional practice, and you know whether Indian or or Tibetan, you know Tantra, Vijayana, you, you're going to do this for maybe 40, 42 days, right? Right. That's your that's your intro level. Yeah. When I did the Tree of Life, starting with first all the spheres, then the paths, then the elements of Malkuth. And then back up again. Okay, so I did the, the spheres on the way down and then up back up with the paths. Mm -hmm. I, I did it in a month wow. on each one. Mm. So it took three and a half years just to do the tree. Now I did that at least twice that way. Mm. And then I did partial version efforts just up to Tifereth with other groups. Mm. So when I talk about the tree, it's experiential. Now, I, I'm not trying to, you know, pat myself on the back. I'm trying to say that I did it within the context of, 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 of tradition, yeah. you know, to interiorize it. So we, we have to look at all these practices now. I mean, the same thing with the, the lucid dreaming and the body of light work. From, yeah, from, yeah, Mark, I, I, I'm familiar with your attitude on this. So I, yeah. I know you're talking the truth. I've seen you express this before, and I'm behind you on that. Yeah. But I, I'm still impressed about uh, your productivity. As normal, we, you, <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, but what we usually do, I mean, it shows you're a devoted student, a devoted brother. Yeah, but, yes. um, where can people find your stuff? 
Very easy. It's the Institute for Hermetic Studies. Just Google it. Uh, you can find us on Amazon, just my name, Mark Stavish, or Institute for Hermetic Studies. And we have courses at Teachable. And that's the important part. We have a lot of courses at Teachable. So if you, you go there, you can find Institute for Medic Studies and, and sign up for our, our programs and take them at your leisure, uh, at, you know, at, at the ease you would like. So you can do the whole program or you can do it a la carte. It's up to you. And uh, we're constantly developing better ways of interacting with students. We're not working on constantly new content and we're not content generators. Mm. We're not trying to do that. What we're trying to do is find mechanisms of interacting with people, students, that takes what we have, which is very good, and getting you to do it more often to develop a practice where you will benefit so that, again, as we said, how will this help you while you're alive and how will it help you when you're dead? And that you'll have the answers to that so that you can find this liberation, this enlightenment, this freedom you're after. Yeah, uh, is practical stuff. Practice. Yeah, this is practice-oriented. There's a lot of literature, but I, we discourage a lot of reading uh, because we want practice. Mm. It's about practice. Mm. And only training and practicing individually, that's what will get you anywhere at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. Many people have heard of you. Uh, well, you, you've gotten a new name now, but before you were very often associated with alchemy. Uh, and you have written about it. But uh, what would you say about your books? Uh, first off, if people join uh, or subscribe to your school, will they then have to buy your books or will they get it through the school? Are your books separate is what I'm asking. The, the programs are, are standalone. Uh, I would encourage them to buy the books to read them along with it because some things are PDF and they're not always easy to read on the screen. So... I would instead encourage um, them to read them, uh, particularly some of the audio programs, which are transcribed, so they're easier to read than listen to. Right. And you can listen to them at your leisure again, because, and they've been cleaned up. We've added some additional commentary. But with the courses, we've also added additional teaching materials. So it, 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 they, they go together. And of course, um, it's going to be up to the individual to decide how much effort they want to put into something like spagyrics or alchemy and, and how they're going to develop an, an integrated practice. You know, the foundation of all practice ultimately is going to be meditation, developing concentration, self-discipline and regularity in those practices, and then applying it to a particular discipline. Mm. Some people really enjoy spagyrics and alchemy. Others, not so much. Others prefer ritual magic. Others, not so much. Some want to go into more of a direct energetic approach, dealing with the energies of the body. And something like the body of light really does evolve off that. It really is a direct relationship to the energies of the body. And a lucid dreaming too, right? Well, that is correct. The lucid dreaming part is critical because that is how you, you take over or, or blend the experiences of the day with the night, so to speak. Yeah. And you move from... Um, what is the word I'm looking for? You create greater continuity of consciousness. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, people can check out your books. All of them are at Amazon, right? Uh, not at the moment because we're having trouble getting that updated because of the last year. COVID has been pretty tough on a lot of our volunteers. 
but uh, we do have. Uh, but uh, can they buy it? I, I don't encourage people to actually use Amazon. Can they buy it directly from your website? They can't. I prefer they try and order them and encourage them to order them through their local bookstore. Right. Yeah. Hmm. I forgot to. I had the pandemic uh, as a topic too, but we'll we'll deal with that next time. That'll be fine, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure, and oh, it, I, I expected it to be deep, but I think we went even deeper than my expectations. So well done, brother. Well done. <laughs> well, we did go into the deep end of the pool pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We just threw ourselves out there. That's that's how it goes. Uh, Anyway, I hope people, I hope you followed and I promise to, to get Mark back. Oh, sounds great. Thank you very much again. Oh, well, thank you very much and I appreciate it. Okay, Mark, you're a jolly good fellow. Now give the dogs its due. I have to give my cat its due. Talk to you later then. Bye. Bye. Thus far today and thanks again to Mark for being a jolly good sport coming on. And elaborating on this phenomenon and the last part we discussed uh, folks uh, the so-called body of light i suppose i should explain that a little better because there is this notion i i would say it's the probably one of the biggest secrets in esoterica often referred to as the arcana arcana arcanorum that we don't automatically reincarnate as most people think. Uh, well, I mean, you could discuss what is reincarnation, what is death. I mean, nothing in this universe goes to waste. Everything is being recirculated. Cosmos is nothing if not ecological and economical. So even down to the atoms of your body will never cease when your corpse is dissolved. It becomes a part of everything else in existence. So... That said, there's still the concept of mortality because for all intents and purposes, if you lose your memory, you also lose your identity and everything and your experiences and everything else. And that's, as you remember, I mentioned in the show today, this phenomenon of retaining your memory is really what freedom is all about and also what control is all about. And so if we automatically lose everything upon the transition phase we call death, then it's actually a form of, it is a mortality and we are born again from scratch, although karma keeps tabs. So in esoterica, there is this knowledge about how to avoid, to different degrees, losing yourself and how to retain as much as possible of the love and wisdom you've accumulated uh, through life. And that practice, uh, that discipline is referred to in different names depending on tradition and terminology used wherever in the world this secret is communicated and there's also different approaches to how to to do this but we will have a full discussion on this probably biggest spiritual mystery in esoterica next time i have mark on which will be some months from now so um, those of you who enjoyed the conversation today well you're in for a treat next time. Of course, those of you who prefer or more practical shows, more social or political matters, may regard all this as airy-fairy fantasy or illusions. Be that as it may, we can't cater to everyone. It's impossible that everyone enjoys everything all the time. And that's not even 
a goal of ours. That's why we're a variety show. So sometimes you'll get subjects you really care for, other times not. But uh, at the end of the day, the most important thing is that you actually enjoy those shows that are up your alley. And speaking of variety, it's not just in contents, but also in outlets now. For example, we talked about being in ODC, which is a manifestation of library. And I really recommend that you check us out there and save that link because we may be gone from YouTube one day. And that's where you're going to find our stuff then, at least our videos. We still, of course, we're at all podcast platforms. So I suggest that you go to the podcast platform you usually use and subscribe to us there. Even if you are already subscribed at YouTube and prefer using YouTube or Odyssey to listen, please also support us in podcast. I don't care if you actually use that to listen to, just subscribe there because we need that for the numbers. You guys should know this by now. All shows, the real currency we have apart from actual money is subscribers. And speaking of that, it's horrible in YouTube because I see shows with half or even one third of subscriptions of what we have and much higher numbers of new shows. Why? Two reasons. Number one, most of our subscribers were accumulated before YouTube rigged the system. And back at that time, there wasn't this bell thing. First it came and you had to click that in addition to being subscribed. And now there's like three levels. Look, guys, you know we are not spewing shows every day. If we did, it's totally fine not to get notified by all shows. But seeing as we are a long form with sporadic releases, you really have to notify of all. So that's number one that we, uh, I think I saw the number was just 7% of our subscribers get notifications of our shows. So that means we have like basically around 4,000 subscribers who get notified and the rest is non-subscribers. And even there we saw our subscription numbers go down despite that we had a huge show dump. You know, from January to May, we released, what, 100 shows? I don't know, super many. And views went up, everything went up because of the huge quantity, right? You would think subscriptions would go up. No, we're down in subscriptions, in percentages. And we've lost 10,000 subscribers, which have been purged. By the way, that includes people who are getting unsubscribed without knowing it and then even being forced to subscribe to a mainstream thing. So even if you think you're a YouTube uh, subscriber, double check that you have actually are subscribed with notifications. And uh, another reason we have so few with notifications on is because many stopped using YouTube. They're ghost accounts. Now, if you're one of those who listen to us through podcast or Odyssey, if you want to help us out, it's a tremendous support. If you go back to YouTube, just log into your old account, then subscribe to us there, click on all notifications, and then go back to whatever you use. You don't have to use YouTube to listen to us. It's just to get up those numbers because they are super important for the algorithm. In fact, all likes, comments, and shares influences it in a positive. When it comes to likes, even dislike. <laughs> a dislike is better than nothing because it counts as activity. 
So, and you guys who share our shows in different forums, online, etc., I occasionally discover stuff like that. Excellent. Keep doing it. You guys who comment on our different podcast channels, perfect. I know uh, we're not interacting with you there, but you still, it's still going a long way to help us. So please subscribe at YouTube and at podcast or ODC or whatever else you use. And we're going to expand to more platforms. But um, even if you subscribe to our website, please also subscribe elsewhere. And and that's going to be an advantage for you anyway, because so far that's where we announce new shows to the website. So um, it's still going to matter. Okay, at that note, I'll leave it at this. And we'll part for now. I remain your host, Al. Until our paths cross again. Be seeing Who is number one?